Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither and I'm joined by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Henry Crinkle? <laughs> you talking to me? You talking to me? Oh, obviously that <laughs> oh, was coming. No, that, was, that was coming. That was that faster was than you, you fuck. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> oh, I am excited to be here. <laughs> yes, very, very so by very exciting day. First off, 100th episode. Woo! We've had more than a hundred. Like we've done, I've done a few solo pods here and there, quick reviews. But for the most part, every themed episode, every episode that has a number, for the most part, we've done together. And here we are. It's crazy. We started this thing. We recorded our first episode February 2020. When we recorded those yep. first two episodes, we were not living in COVID yet. Nope. That's a crazy. We were just in a different world. And then we posted them in July 2020. And here we are. It's like damn near three years later, cruising right along. Does it feel? It's been great. Does it feel <laughs> more like it's more special right now that we've reached 100 rather than when we've like, because we'll text each other in like February when we had our first recording and then July yeah, and be like, yeah. oh, happy anniversary. The pod's been live for two years. But does it feel more yeah. special that we've reached 100? It kind of, it feels like a sort of a different milestone. Yeah, it's weird because the time thing, you're like, yeah, I mean, three years. We've yeah. put three years into this thing. But then you hear 100 episodes and I'm like, is that not a good representation? I feel like, should we have more than 100? Yeah. Maybe it's like 119 with all the bonus ones. But I go, no, that's just like a hell of a lot of work. It was yeah. been a lot of movies, been a lot of words. And we've amassed like just such a great community of loyal fans that we love. Thank you so much for those of you who reach out. Thank you so much for those of you for those of you who don't reach out, but I know we're listening because the amount of people who reach out to us is it while it is very heartening. Our numbers just reflect, you know, more. So thank you everyone, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, That's seriously, all. That's let's all. let's just take a little moment right here now cuz uh it is the mad movie buffs. We we see the numbers and you absolutely listen. If it wasn't for you, we'd be speaking into a vacuum. So yeah, this really is a testament to to you guys because you guys have pretty much kept us going. Like we hear your feedback um, and we'd love to hear more of you. Anyone who's got anything to say to us, we are very open. So please do. But thank you so much because like 100. Jesus. I know. It's awesome. And yeah, please reach out to us. Twitter, Instagram, W-A-Y-W underscore podcast, letterbox as well. You can also email us at what are you watching podcast at gmail.com. We answer all those. People have given us given us some episode ideas. Sure. I don't have. know if we fully run with an idea, but what we've done is looped some of their ideas into an episode and we'll like bring that up as a topic and credit them. So yeah, people have good ideas. It's cool. I just can't believe people give a uh, shit about well, what no, we have to say about yeah, kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and and it is true, like some of the feedback that we do get, like when we hear what people like, we'll go in that direction. We're like, oh well, people really yeah, seem that, to that respond to this, that is so true. we'll keep doing this. Yeah. So you guys do have yeah, an impact true. on the show in terms of how we direct how we want to go about doing episodes. Yeah, and you and I spend a lot of our time talking about just interactions we're having with fans, which mm -hmm, is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. We do it all the time. Yeah, so we we hear it and we see it all and we really appreciate it. And for our 100th episode, as we alluded to on our previous episode, the Barton Scorsese podcast, you said huh. how obvious it was who comes up with the ideas for most of these episodes <laughs> because my favorite film of all time is Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese's 1976 
American masterpiece. This got a lot of mention in our very first episode because that was on our top 10 favorite films of all time. This has been my favorite film of all time. I don't know since I guess since the first time I ever thought to do that, which was when I was 14 or 15 and it's just never left. And that's crazy. And it's not like I don't hold we're going to get into all of this. Trust me, I don't hold it to such a degree where I'm like, nothing's ever going to beat it. I, I, today I'm telling you, this is my, if forced to choose, this is my favorite movie, but Hey, maybe 10, 20 years from now, something else that's in my top 10 will sneak up. I, I don't know. I'm always open to loving any movie and loving any movie more, but nothing has ever really come close to to dethroning this. And that's a okay with me. I fucking love this movie. <laughs> yeah, I it, it, yeah. Our lists are pretty like. I mean, obviously, like we're not so like dead set in and hard nose stubborn that it's like no, though this will never change. But when you do reach that that one that really does speak to you, like this one does for you, it really is like you're almost kind of welcoming the challenge. Like, please come, right? Someone make a movie or see. Let me see a movie that I haven't seen that could even remotely come close to dethroning the greatness of this number one movie. But this is a, um, this isn't just you either. Like this is Mm -hmm. um, taxi driver is a movie that the film industry, like this is a movie that everyone holds up to that standard. Yeah. This is not just like, you know, blow (laughs) (laughs) where I am on your, you're on your Island. I do have an Island where that is my favorite, but this is regarded. uh, This is one of those. I feel like this is a movie that's very well protected in terms of like everyone, no one fuck with taxi driver. Like this, this is a seminal masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, we can get to, I, I actually didn't even have this in this long outline of mine. I didn't even have it in here in terms of controversy, how, the reputation for this movie, kind of like in the mid 2010s, that's when online this reputation of like whoever likes this movie is some douchebag film tr- Twitter bro uh. who just wants to like cause violence or do this or wants to cause anarchy. And then it kind of got fueled up a lot more when Joker came out in 2019, like it just mixing it with that. And that is never ever why I have been attracted to this movie. I don't agree with any of those criticisms or sentiments at all. The shortest point, because no one's ever like, hey, what's your favorite movie of all time? I say Taxi Driver. And then obviously the next question is why? And I've been asked that hundreds upon hundreds of times in my life. So I try to distill it down into like, you know, an elevator pitch. And I just say, simply put, if I had to pick my favorite types of movies are character studies, plotless things where we are just following someone around why we don't necessarily know why we're following them around. Maybe we have some indication of what they do for a living given by the title, but we're just following them around. And this is the best character study I have ever seen. And I still have never seen a character study that tricked me so well. I I mean, I'll never forget. I saw Taxi Driver. I've said this so many times when I was 10 years old. And that is true. I saw a lot of movies when I was 10. And I just knew this is one I had to get to. Like I saw clips and Oscar montages. Of course, I I had heard like you talking to me. I'd, I'd seen all these references. And I'm like, I have to see this movie. That and, you know, the subsequent what, like 15 viewings, which probably all happened in the span of two years. I'm just studying the film. I'm studying how it was made. I'm studying these choices. I'm going, oh my God, how did this guy trick me so much? Because when I was watching it this morning, I was trying to watch it as someone who has never seen it before. And I'm like, he's not doing anything bad for a really long time. (laughs) Like he does go to a porno theater, but that that was kind of normal in 19. They shot this in the summer of 1975. That was kind of normal in 1975, New York. Like he's not doing anything 
too crazy. And then he just kind of tricks you into like, oh, it's this sad, lonely guy. And there's way, way more going on here. That's just one reason why I like it. The the reasons honestly are endless. Yeah, Just one. Well, the, I think that is that's true. They are endless because it is a character study. But then there's also so much about the filmmaking itself, the technique, the style. Yes. yes. When you're talking about um, the cinematography, uh, the writing, the score, like this is a very, very like perfectly put together piece. But in kind of talking about like the backlash that the movie has gotten over the recent years, you know, because the the movie does bring up some uncomfortable ideas. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't oh, think yes. anyone's on like, that's not an unjust thing to say about the movie, because that's the point. The point is, is yeah. that yeah. it is bringing up. Because for this guy, this guy is actually going through this. Mm-hmm. And it's really just being uncomfortably truthful to a very, very unfortunate person in a very fortunate situation. But just because it's raising these questions and ideas does not mean that it's advocating. Yes, exactly. I wonder if, if pe- people are getting confused today because when movies or art of any kind present an idea of something that immediately because it it because what it does is it opens up your mind to it yeah and do we really want to keep our minds completely closed off because no no no, i don't want to talk about the idea of of you know where he goes here because that that that's just opening up a pandora's box of things i don't want to think or feel Mm mm-hmm that is also not advocating for going out there. This is not a movie that's saying, "Hey, if you are f- go, if you're feeling a certain way, go shoot somebody about it." Like right, this exactly. is not exactly. what that is. But if we lose the ability and the uh, the boldness to tackle these issues through art, then I think we're in trouble. Uh, yeah. uh, and I think this is a movie that shows the horror of it, mm-hmm. the absolute um, – I mean, there's no celebrating this. There's no – like No, tra- not at Travis all. Travis Bickle is not a – even though the movie at the end – you know, there is this. Well, we'll, 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 we'll get, get there. there. We'll get yeah, there. we'll get, get to the, we'll get no, there. we'll get to the end. But yeah, this isn't we talked about this on the last episode a little bit about how a lot of Martin Scorsese's most famous characters don't really change. Yeah. They're still they, they may even be worse than they are when they started. Like, I would argue where we meet Howard Hughes and the aviator and where we end up like there's been no personal growth here. Not really. Not really. He's just and then we know how his life ended and it's just going to spin out. And that lack of catharsis. As Patrick Bateman would say, you know, there is no catharsis. This is all going back to Travis Bickle yep. when and I think the end is kind of showing its hand a little bit to go uh, just because the world got a hold of this and want to celebrate him. That is not what's going on in this dude's mind. Sorry. And, and I have uh, we'll get to it. But I had and I've seen this movie. I don't know how many times, not as much as you uh, clearly, but um, <laughs> I've seen it. Definitely. I think I'm in the double digits at this point. But um, that's a lot. That's, that's a, lot a lot of times to see text. I studied this a yeah. lot for There I Go. This was a very, very yeah, obviously, yeah. I think that was a, a big movie. We talked about that for a long time. But um, I had a relationship to the very end of this movie that I've never had before. So I'm excited to talk about it because I've always had an okay, opinion cool. about it. But in my viewing of it today, I, I, I stood up for my chair and I go, nope. I have a hard opinion about this now. So do and I. it might change because because it's a it's it, it's one of those endings that you can kind of do whatever you want with. 
Um, yeah. But today I felt this very specific way about it, which was cool to have that after so many viewings. I love that. I love that. All right, let's get into it. Talk a little bit about the history, where this thing came from. Not too much, but Paul Schrader is basically yeah. <laughs> walking around, uh, kind of living the life of Travis Bickle. Travis Bickle early scenes. You know, he was inspired by his own trouble life at the time. He heard the story of this guy, Arthur Bremer, who had shot George Wallace in 1972. So he's interested in like the psychology of someone who will do that. Of course, Skeeky Frome, who was a member of the Charles Manson family, attempted to assassinate Gerald Ford in 1975. So this is also fueling Schrader. But Schrader's like, he's got a stomach ulcer. He's going through a divorce. He is living out of his car. He is spending his days and nights in porno theaters. He's realizing that literal weeks at a time are going by and he is not communicating to anyone. So, you know, everyone's palling around New York and L.A. This is the time of Brian De Palma, who this young guy, Robert De Niro, had, wor had worked with. Brian De Palma is also friends with this guy, Marty Scorsese. So we have this emergence of three talents that are really brought together by the by this married producing team, Michael and Julia Phillips. They get Trader to write the script after they see Mean Streets. They're like, this has to go to Scorsese and De Niro. It's a package like De Niro is the taxi driver. Scorsese's the director. De Niro's filming stuff. Scorsese's working on Alice doesn't live here anymore. So they have like this summer to go film this thing. And Columbia gives them one point nine million dollars. Not a lot of money. Ooh. I was stunned to find out only two hundred thousand dollars of that went to the actors. So. No one's making that much money on this. The only person who had a trailer was Robert De Niro, and that's so they could do his makeup, change his makeup and stuff. It's They were just really running and gunning, and everyone had another bigger project to get to when the summer was done. So they're just running and gunning and making this movie. That's where it comes from. It comes from Paul Schrader, his life. It also comes from Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro kind of being in similar phases, like what's going on with our careers? Where are we? Not really knowing how things are going to turn out. So they were all kind of in this stage. And it's this beautiful marriage of three immense talents in the best era of American cinema. So it's yeah. absolutely right place, right time, got a little money and they go. And what ends up happening is just this huge phenomenon of a movie that has stayed around that has never left the lexicon and is still very respected and it's just something i've loved since the first time i saw it i have a few things here to kind of i have a few bullet points this is in this podcast you're going to hear me say of all time a lot <laughs> that's okay it's episode 100 baby the main reasons why i love this and i want to hear some of yours too we've talked about the craft of it and how mm -hmm. much it taught me about filmmaking a simple shot of him making a phone call from a yeah. payphone and then the camera pans right and you're like, huh? We'll get into that and how much that taught me. All the little beats of like the slow motion hand going over the desk, all the stuff. I mentioned it's the best character study I've ever seen because it's tricking me. It's manipulating me. Like, should I like this guy? Whoa, I kind of I kind of do understand this guy because they've manipulated me for an hour. They've made me kind of care about this guy. Now he's doing all this crazy shit that I don't agree with. So now I'm conflicted. I love that. The movie has my favorite character reveal of all time. When we're just hanging out, Travis Bickle's waist, he grabs an antacid, puts it in his mouth. The camera just, boom, moves up so quick. And you see that mohawk and you're like, oh, who the fuck is this guy? Like, oh, man, this, th this movie just changed. We're in for it now. Has my favorite score of all time by the uh. great Bernard Herrmann, who recorded the score in two days. Two days. And at the end of the last day... He went home and he passed away and died. What? That's 
a very yeah yeah bernard i mean bernard herman did the music for psycho bernard herman is famous he was pretty much done making movies yeah but but right but he scored brian de palma's obsession which is also written by paul schrader so that was kind of Marty's in. Because think about the music that's been in Marty's movies. Think about Mean Streets. All that pop yeah, music. Yeah. Think about the music even in Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore. But as Marty has said, that music can be in Mean Streets because that's what those characters are listening to. Travis Bickle does not listen to music. Yeah. Travis Bickle does not have his pulse on pop music. So we have to bring in this score and Bernard Herman just heard horns. He he took some convincing and he was, you know, a bit of a curmudgeon, but it's Bernard Herman. And I think it the score uh, the fact that he did it in two days and it's so iconic it is so legendary it's a character in the movie i oh, yeah. i mean i might even call it like the second main character in the movie but i'll get into more reasons why but those are just some very high level reasons why i love this film it's so funny that you talked about the uh the phone call scene because you and i have talked about this oh yeah and this is also a scene where not just us, but I've heard Bill Hader talk mm-hmm. about this scene. I've heard so by. Yeah. many yeah. other filmmakers discuss that particular scene. And and I'll just say it now as we just get into it. That That is – this is so silly to say, but it's not though. That is the scene where I actually understood for the very first time what cinematography actually was. Same here. I, I didn't get it while it was happening, but I, I had to put it together. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, we're jumping ahead, but we'll just cut this, get this scene because we're in it right now. Um, Travis Bickle is talking on the phone. He's making a call to uh, Sybil Shepard's character because he's made a fool of himself. And um, <laughs> and he's trying to get it back. And it's not it's not going to happen. It's not going well. Did you get the flower? Did you get the flowers I sent? Did you get my call? You know, it's that type the of thing. Desperation. A little bit oh, I'm so sorry. Desperation. Yes. The, yes. Pathetic desperation. The pathetic yeah. desperation after, you know, really just being sleazy, even though you you know he didn't mean it. Um, but nonetheless, here we are. She doesn't want anything to do with it. And the camera, as we're watching him in a still shot, then just pans all the way to the right. In, and it, now it's we're still hearing him. We haven't left his presence. We've left his view. Yep. And um, now we're just the camera is literally staring down a hallway, an empty hallway, and we're hearing him. This phone call continue. Now, so many people have their own idea of what this means. Me personally, in the way that I still like to take it, but I love hearing everyone's take on it, is that it was so pathetic. And uncomfortable yeah, yeah. that even I like the camera can't look at this. The camera can't do it. The camera can't even observe because the whole time yep. throughout the movie where it is. This is a Travis Bickle point of view movie. Yeah. It's all through his POV. Sometimes the way the camera staged when we're just like walking behind him. I mean, the, the steam from the street. And then we go to the office, the cabbie office, and the steam from the street carries over into the office because he can't get the street off of him. The whole thing is from his POV. And that scene is the first time they're like, no, it's not. Like, this is a movie. Right there, he's reminding us, you're watching a movie. Yep. Like, I, I'm telling you, I'm, this is a director choice, a cinematographer choice. It's very, very deliberate, but it's so pathetic. It's so, it's so pathetic. pathetic, and they want us to feel that. It's also really crucial that we can't hear Sybil Shepard as yes. Betsy on the other end of the phone, and I love that choice. Who knows if she was even on it, but- Yeah, he could yeah, have been leaving a voice point. Uh, or uh, right. a voice machine back in the day. Yeah, and it's, um, it's a full 65 seconds, I counted this morning, of the shot, of the still shot, uh. and then it moves over. That's when it just becomes- 
becomes too unbearable and you're like, nope, we can't watch. And, we can't bear to watch this. It's just so pathetic. And that's what <laughs> I when I realized <sighs> that cinematography is not about beautiful um, shots or con- construction. It is a part of that, but it's also what is the camera doing to accentuate what this scene is trying to say? Yeah. What can the camera do to communicate a feeling or an idea that's already being presented by the dialogue, by the performance, but how can the camera add and, and in this case, steal the scene? Yeah. This is one of the only few times where outside of just like crazy, like, you know, impressive one oneers and things like yeah. that where like, but this was a situation where the camera is completely the star of what's happening and it's awesome. And I go, oh, that's what cinematography is. This is telling the story with the camera. Yeah, it's not as long or flashy as Henry Hill and Karen walking into the Copacabana and Goodfellas, but it's yeah. it's also communicating the point mm-hmm. of the character so well. Because in Goodfellas, you're just supposed to see his ease of access. Yeah. Look how easy it is for him to get in. He's having doors open. As long as he's got those 20s, he's having doors being open for him, a table being put right up front. And yeah, th- that's communicating to us how easy it all is. This is communicating how pathetic it all is. And it's brilliant. Brilliant. All right, let's get into the cast. We've already mentioned some of them, but you're going to hear these names a lot. Obviously, we have Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle. I don't... Is it his best performance? I don't know. That's a tough call. That's hard to say. That's, that's it a is, tough call. I mean, yeah. I it, it is as iconic as movie acting gets. I'll tell you that, certainly. We have Sybil Shepard as Betsy, his love interest that becomes an unrequited love interest. Yeah. We have Betsy's co-worker Tom, played by Albert Brooks. Few pieces of trivia about this that I love. This part was originally offered to Harvey Keitel. That's who Scorsese offered it to and Keitel was like, I, I think I like that pimp better. So <laughs> they did a they did a switch and Paul Schrader admitted that this Tom character was not well written, that it wasn't, there was really nothing to the part and Marty very wisely cast a comedian and Albert Brooks improvised all of his dialogue. So all that crazy shit, you know, <laughs> let's not fight. It's all <laughs> him. It's just, uh, That's I cool. love it. Well, I think there's a difference. We are the people is not the same as we are the people. Let's not fight. Look, we'll make it real simple. We don't pay for the buttons. We throw the buttons away. All right. Leonard Harris as Senator Charles Palantine, I love it. Just he wasn't in a lot, but I really, really love him in this. He has that scene in the cab is so good. The, yeah, he's like talking to him. Yeah, it's really good. Of course, Jodie Foster as Iris. Oh, man. oh a young Jodie Foster, completely stealing every scene she's in, going toe to toe with Robert De Niro. Harvey Keitel as Iris's <laughs> pimp sport. Peter Boyle yes. as Wizard, the know-it-all cabbie who has a few great scenes. Stephen Prince, who we talked about in our Scorsese yep. episode as Easy Andy, the gun salesman. And then another, the final big person to name in the cast is Martin Scorsese himself, yep. who is the passenger watching silhouette yep. in the film. He also has that brief kind of cameo where he's just sitting outside of Palantine headquarters. That's what he was supposed, he to, was do supposed that. to have, that little cameo. Suppo- but the cab one was, we'll talk about that, that was a... I'm talking a last second thing. Yep. He's like, okay, so I, I I have to put this suit on now and do this because there's no one else to do it. The character who was cast was uh, indisposed. <laughs> How? Who's to say? Who's to say? <laughs> What's fair to say? What not to say? Let's do it. Let's just start talking about the movie. We're going to go in order, but we'll talk about anything that tickles our fancy as we go. Anything we want to call out. What you see is what we got. 
opening credits, I mean, God, we just start with dun 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 that thing building yep. up the music, the music. And the cab goes by in the clouds and the title reveal. Still one of my favorite title reveals, just the music. Oh my God, it's so perfect. And of course, we get that first shot of Travis so close up, but the music kind of softens. The title itself is so 70s. Oh God, like, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's perfect. It, it, it lets you really know that this is a time capsule too. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it really feels like it's not trying to be anything other than, nope, this is, this is the kind of fonts that we did in the 70s and this is what we're doing for this one. Oh, it's great. It's so purposeful, intentional. I love it. The first big scene is at the cabbie stand when it's kind of the impromptu job interview and he walks in and like I said, that steam or smoke from the streets is following him in. So I do have a few prompts as we go. And of course, we didn't discuss Taxi Driver in depth on the Martin Scorsese podcast because we knew this episode was coming. The prompt I left people with and you was, was Travis Bickle ever really in Vietnam? Was he ever in the military? Was he actually a Marine? Does he actually have Marine veteran status? Now, before you answer, this is something I had never considered. Yeah. Never. Never. In in 30 years of loving this movie, 25, 30 years of loving this movie, I never even thought to consider it. And then I read fucking Quentin Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation, and his big speculation of Taxi Driver is, of course, this guy wasn't in the military. And he, he gives a few signs of that. Number one, Travis Bickle does not seem to understand people of color at all. He seems afraid of them, hence all the slow motion shots of gang members, of pimps. And being in Vietnam, you would have served with people of color. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't have this fear. These are Tarantino's points. He doesn't think the jacket looks real. He thinks Travis Bickle just bought it at a shop and then had his name put on the back of it. All these little things. He doesn't think he's talking with any authority about the time he served. So that's just kind of an interesting way to go down. It doesn't really, I don't know if it changes the movie entirely, but it, it allowed me to view an aspect of the movie very differently and go, I, I think that kind of tracks. I mean, I, I don't know if it changes. Again, I don't know if it changes the whole film, but it is a very interesting way to look at things and a very interesting way to look at him. Well, it is. And I've been thinking about it a lot. It actually informed a lot of when I was watching it. I mean, and this is just a cool conversation because it, there is no answer to it. There is no right or wrong. There is no definitive. Exactly. Uh, he was or he wasn't. But if he wasn't, then it indicates that Travis Bickle is to some degree a liar. And that's never been something that I've associated with that character. Um, no, he's a huge liar. Thinks about, think about when he writes his parents. Those are all lies. Oh, no, My that's girlfriend true. named that's Betsy. True. I, have, the, I have this new job. No, no he's, yeah. he's like, what makes him, what makes this narration so good is that we can't really believe a fucking thing he says. No, okay. Yeah, you know, you're 100% nuts. right. I guess, it's, yeah. I guess it's because he doesn't really lie to people, like when he's talking to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Like, in the moment, like he, I guess that's what I was thinking of. But no, he does, he does lie in those journal entries and in his letters to his parents. Um, he is very, very. Whenever that military thing is brought up, he does like get a little shy. He gets, mm-hmm. yeah, he does not speak with authority about it, um, and he doesn't even speak when he does respond to that. Um, it's not even like I don't want to talk about it. It's it, it's it's there's just no it, reaction. It's almost like a throwaway. Yeah. Like yeah, I was in the military and then moving on. Yeah, because this boss it kind of endears him to the boss. The guy leans back and he's yeah. like, "Oh, I was a marine." And Bickle doesn't 
press him on it. Like, oh, what outfit? Where, where were you stationed? And so there's no like you would think if what Bickle is doing, if he is lying, if he's it, it, OK, if he's telling the truth and he really was there, you would think he would use that as more of like a launching point to, you know, start conversations or getting good with people. But to me, if I go with Tarantino's speculation, he could be making up these lies to curry favor from people like here's a here's a lonely Vietnam veteran who needs a job or who needs a date or something. I, I don't know. Whether he's lying or not, it's it's a great uh, theory. It's to run a great with. theory. Yeah, I'll work anytime, anywhere, anytime, any. What's moonlighting? Like he doesn't understand. Oh the yeah, terms. like what's moonlighting? I love that. I love that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I one thing I noticed in this time around is like it in the beginning, like he is a, he's off, but it, it almost seems like he's got a good thing going in these like mm-hmm. first like beginnings of the movie. You know, he's he's getting a job. Yeah, you know he he is he's a little awkward and everything, but you know he's doing his best to smile. He's doing his best. He catches himself in a few um, things that he shouldn't have said, uh, and, mm-hmm. and he kind of just mm-hmm. kind of owns it and takes up for it. I forgot exactly what he says to him because oh, because the cause clean the, like my conscience. Well, because the guy's like you're not going to bust my balls, right? Are you or something like that? And, right, and he's right. Like no, no, no. And then you know it, it seems like he's got a good thing, and that and then and we'll get to mm-hmm. it. But this is when he like you know meets Betsy and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, he gets the job things. Even the first few shifts we have on him on the job, like he seems like, you know, I'm doing some, I'm out here working. Yep. I'm out all nights anyway. I may as well get, may as well be getting paid for it. He, I love when he leaves that cab sin and we do like that 360 shot around just the whole room. And then he like touches the trunk of the cab as he exits. And then one of my favorite just compositions in the film is when he exits that cab stand on 57th street and the lot if you look like the line of the cabs are taking us right to his right to bickle so like all the lines all the access lines are perfect and then way up in the left corner you can see like a little grass on the hill and some homes on the hill we don't ever see grass in this movie it's like there's this whole world out there that he's never going to be exposed to because this city just traps him in yeah that's what i read on it anyway god i love it jesus christ that's awesome <laughs> takes a little nip from his liquor oh, i love it Okay, but after he leaves there, that's when he goes home for the first time. Yep. And that's when we're taking in this apartment. I mean, what does the production design alone tell us about Travis? There's filth. There's garbage. All the food is junk food. It's so small. It's a mess. And then, yeah, we cut back. He's working in the rain. I mean, these rain-soaked neon streets are like in my dreams. I have visions of of these shots and taxi driver. Oh, and everything's just like a little hazy. Oh, my God. I love it. And, um... Yeah, you're right. Like he is in a good groove because think about the things that may like bother someone like you or I. Like I would be very bothered by what was going on in a cab if I was driving. Yeah. It. But he's just tells in his journal each night when I get back, I had to clean the cum off my back seat. Sometimes I clean off the blood. Mm-hmm. It's like no big deal. And it's weird to put to me to put blood second in that. Like the first thing is just it's like it's a gimme. It was a, it was a Wednesday. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. You know, Fridays, Fridays are a lot. He's just OK with it. Like nothing really seems to be bothering him. But he do- also doesn't seem to have much purpose. Like, cool, I have this thing. And then, you know, the next thing he goes to the porno theater. So we're still just seeing him alone. And it's like the porno theater. I mean, we got to get into this because there's there's a lot to there, open up about this. Yeah, there's one shot that I really loved. And it's only because I've had personal experience is that I used to work overnight shifts. This is where is this going? Where, oh my where, god! No, this is. I went to these porno theaters right after work. <laughs> yeah, right. 
midnight shifts. You get off. You need to get off, and you need to. Well, never mind. You would um Gross. like there. There's one shot of him. It's one of the. It's in this in this sequence where he's getting off of work, and um, I think he's actually on his way to the porno theater. But it feels like seven o'clock in the morning. The yes, sun yes. is right where seven o'clock is, and for most people who are out at that time, they are going somewhere. And for going to work, yeah, going to work and for overnight workers, you're done. Mm -hmm. And I always felt such a difference when I would do overnight shifts where I would come out at 7 a.m. and I'd be walking to my car. I there there was just a feeling that I got that this is just not the way this is supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And I would always see that lighting of that sun and it's captured exactly like the feeling I would get of coming out of work at 7 a.m. is that scene is that shot when he's mm -hmm. walking and I go, wow, that's that is exactly it. It's just there. And then that's just me putting that onto it. But that's I, I love that. I, I thought it was very, very cool. I th I agree, and I think that's what is happening. Yep. I think he's working nights, long nights. Oh yeah, he's probably he starting it. maybe like an hour or two before the sun goes down, and then he's stopping an hour or two after the sun comes up. So he's working long nights. He's working six yeah. to six, sometimes to eight. You're right, exactly. And then yeah, when he gets out, he can't sleep, so he's going to these theaters. First time we see him go to, <laughs> go to the theater, talk about like awkwardness. Just <laughs> he doesn't know how to talk to that poor woman, the poor clerk who was who ended up being Robert De Niro's first wife, Diane Abbott, which is hilarious. Oh their, wow, their little vibe is just so good. They were dating when they filmed this, so you know what you see is what we got. I oh, I love that he's just trying to make small talk with her. Like now, can I help you? Yeah, what's your name? My name is Travis. That's nice. What can I do for you? I'd like to know what your name is. What's your name? Give me a break. Well, you can tell me what your name is. I'm not going to do anything, you know. Just... Do you want me to call the manager? Oh, you don't have to call the manager. I mean, I'm just asking. Troy! All right, okay. I'm just... Okay. Can I have a chuckle, sir? And, uh, you have any jujubes? I've... Uh, they last longer. I like to get some. What you see is what we got. I okay. Next prompt. We actually talked about this a lot on the "There Will Be Blood" commentary, mm. and it's a great point to bring up because similarly, you've made good points about as an actor building a character. Sometimes talked about with Amy Adams. She gets she identifies the faith of every character yeah. she does, even if that character doesn't have religion. You've talked about identifying the humor. Yeah. And then we've also talked about it can be important, sometimes critical, to identify the sexual predilections of a character. Yep. And I'm asking, similar to how we asked about Daniel Plainview, has Travis Bickle ever had sex? That's such a great question. And I I would probably say no. I would agree. I would agree. This would probably be a situation. Yeah. I don't know. This this comment where we're going is also directly um, tied to that criticism I was talking about from the movie, like the incel criticism oh. of the virgin guy who just wants to go out and shoot people. That's kind of that's where a lot of the criticism was coming from. I do think it's important to bring up because I don't think he knows how to he doesn't really know how to socialize. He gets kind of good with his cabbie buddies. I mean, kind of not really. But, but that's guys, too. Yeah. It, but he doesn't know how to socialize with women. The one time he does, the first time he meets Betsy, he seems to me like he's really practice that he's oh, like this is how i'm gonna walk in yeah. i'm gonna walk in with my strut i'm gonna say these lines like you can, if you want to call it a friend you can call it a friend it feels like similar to you talking to me he's practiced that in the mirror like i've this is how men 
talk to women. Like yep. I have to go try. I have to try my best. And then they invite them to a movie. That's what they do. Dinner and a movie. So she won't go to dinner with me, but she'll go out for coffee and pie. And then we'll go to a movie. And he doesn't even consider what the content of the movie should be. It doesn't, doesn't matter. And th- this is the separation I'm talking about where like when he's in this first porno theater, it looks like he's watching a fucking nature documentary. Like he doesn't understand. He's kind of looking at it with this blank face and he has all these snacks. Like he's there to like yeah, be yeah. entertained or something. It's not, he doesn't seem to be there for the reason that the other men are there, which is to, you know, be in and out. Yeah. So yeah, to speak. yeah. And then, you know, leave, clean themselves off and then leave perhaps. But that's something I've considered for a while. But I, again, it is not, I don't think it's explicit to the movie. I don't think you have to have that answer as an audience member to enjoy the movie. I just, this is a movie we've both seen a lot of times. So we're putting these like extra yep. kind of reads on it just to get people thinking, to get us thinking. And, that's all. And there's something that I, that it seems like, you know, the way that he approaches her when he's wearing that suit, it's like the only time, like, 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 you know, he got this suit just to make this impression. And exactly. There's something like about that um, innocent romance that he's trying to do. Yeah. Like he feels that way. On one hand, it's creepy because he's just sitting outside the taxi cab watching her. But I don't I don't personally think that he has impure thoughts. I think he actually looks at her as like, wow, that's the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Man, to even just even remotely even talk to her would be like the like the best thing of my life. Yeah, they cannot touch yeah that's what he's talking about yeah like the streets these streets are fucking filthy someone just come and flush it down the fucking toilet but they cannot touch her she is pure she is my angel i don't even know her name yet damn damn i gotta ask her last name doesn't matter she is an angel in the street to him it's to him him. and that's a type of feeling that one has in boyhood like that is like your like your first crush Mm -hmm. your you know Mm -hmm. this type of thing so I, that would lead me to think that this is another reason as to why he probably has never had sex is because he's treating her. He's probably had other crushes before, potentially growing up, but they never went anywhere. So he still puts that type of emphasis on this person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that. We skipped. Yeah. Yeah. Because at first, the first time he sees her, like he sees her walking and then he is kind of staring at her outside and she's talking to Albert Brooks and she's like, that cabbie is staring at us. And he's like, which one? She goes, put on your glasses. Okay. And you know, he already has them on. I love that. I love, she's like, look over there. And he goes, I love you. It's, it's yeah. so funny. <laughs> he just adds in all these little funny bits. And then he goes to the cafeteria. So we get to meet all, all of our guys. We get to meet Wizard, Doughboy, Charlie T. Mm-hmm. That's a really critical scene because that's the first time we see him observing these people of color, these black pimps sitting in the same cafeteria he is ordering food, drinking beers, but he's studying them and they're kind of looking at him. And as an audience member, this this took me a long time to figure out what these shots meant because I I mean I saw this movie way pre-internet, so I didn't I didn't know how to like look this stuff up, and I'd be like, what does this mean? Because it looks like he's afraid, and yeah, this is Travis Bickle is far from a perfect man. He's a very very flawed character. I love flawed characters, but it, it is important just to kind of note that. I think another really critical thing of that cafeteria scene is when when Do- I love when Doughboy goes, hey Travis, how's it hanging? And De Niro does that great double take. And he's like, huh? Like he's never heard the term. How's it hanging? And, he, he, and you can, it's like he's trying to figure out, oh, this is like slang for 
how's it going well, okay okay he's just so he's, he is like he's kind of like a teenager like yeah. in, like an infant he's like yeah. emotionally like an infant there's just been some emotional stunting that i always attributed to vietnam and now that i'm not that's that's what makes this all interesting it, to me that like so why is this guy stunted what is going on it seems like he has a good relationship with his parents are his parents real i don't fucking know it's oh well i God. mean well that's the thing well i love there's one i I don't know when this happens in the movie, but I think it's towards the end because um, he's writing his letter to his parents. And, you know, he's basically saying, I hope no one has died. Yeah, I love that. And, I hope that no one has died. And, and I was like, wow, OK, so you have so little communication. None. Like They are not writing you back. It's like it's one of your birthdays. <laughs> I think both of your birthdays happened. It's yeah. That's yeah. what I'm like. Is this real? Um, like, are these people real? I, I don't know. I hope this card finds you all well as it does me. I hope no one has died. Don't worry about me. One day, there'll be a knock on the door, and it'll be me. Love, Travis. <laughs> and there's one thing about the script, though, that uh, that uh, Travis says this throughout so many times, and it's about to happen in, in the scene. He has already said it to her, uh, to Betsy, where he goes, well, I don't know much about politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he says, I don't know much about movies. Yep. I don't know much about this or that. He he the the script is having the character announce to people I don't know about these things. Yeah. So that leads you to like if you're De Niro you're like, well, he says this a lot. I mean, he must really not know. Right? Yeah, so that that to your point like he's like I don't know much about how people hang out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know <laughs> I love that he goes uh I don't know the senator's stand on welfare, but I'm sure it's a good stand. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of making stuff up as he goes. And I I love that whole that's a there's really good chemistry there between he mm-hmm. and Sybil Shepherd. Mm-hmm. It might be my favorite scene of theirs in the movie, just her kind of being like, cause she's no she she's been around. You can tell she's no she's not easy. She knows how to spot a challenging person, how to spot a threat. She's not like wooed off her feet by him. She hasn't an appropriate level of danger. I mean, it's just a literal dude off the street. I don't know who this guy is, but okay, yeah, I'll go go out for coffee and pie. And that's I mean, that's a great scene. I love um I would say he has quite a few problems. I love that line from De Niro. Oh talking yeah. Talking about Albert Brooks. Yeah. She's like, well, I don't like him very much. I have to tell you that. That that whole entire scene is basically about him. It is almost like he's he's trying to best Albert Brooks. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. He's just degrading him like he's a clown. He has bad energy. I don't think he takes things seriously. And he talked to him for like seven seconds. <laughs> but yeah, he's just trying to right now. That's the only other male figure in yep. Betsy's life. So he's trying to diminish him. What's he going to do with the other male figure in Betty's, Betsy's life? He's going to try to fucking kill him. <laughs> so it shows you where he's at with old Betsy here. But yeah. Yeah. Great point. You have to pie date. Love that pie date. Yeah, I do. He's too. At, and, he, and he's relatively like. He, he, I mean, outside of him kind of going back to the Albert Brooks thing, like he's socially handling himself pretty well. <laughs> he is this day. It seems like he's handling things well like this. You know, he's gone. He's met Betsy. He's agreed to come back at four. I love that. The He's like really honing in like 4 p.m. R- right out front. I'll be here. Like it's like he's got he's got every detail. All his base is covered. And then, you know, shortly after he finds out he may have just volunteered for Senator Palatine's campaign, he gets Senator Palatine as a fair. This is a quick scene but you again you got to keep in mind like we're still like 20 25 minutes into the movie and if you're watching it for the first time that we don't know that this guy is crazy yet we we haven't really even seen much stuff that's crazy like you said like 
He's he did just handle himself well socially kind of twice with Betsy. Now he gets a senator in the car. I love that senator's aide like kind of leaning forward to oh. get the senator's attention. Like, are you sure we should be in this fucking car and you should be talking to this guy? I love that little look. But then Travis just gets like, you know, he's smiling. He's doing all this. And then this is when you kind of start to see it. You see these like depression wheels spinning. Yeah. Or this, this mania spraying, whatever it is. And then it descends with flush on the fucking toilet and kind of yep. goes a little too far. And that's really one of the first cases when we see, see that. And I love Palantine's reaction to it. Well, Travis, it's great. Can I ask you something, Travis? Sure. What is the one thing about this country that bugs you the most? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't follow political issues that closely, sir. I don't know. Oh, well, there must be something. Well, whatever it is, you should clean up this city here, because this city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. And sometimes I can hardly take it. Whatever ever becomes the president should just... Really clean it up. You know what I mean? Sometimes I go out and I smell it. I get headaches. It's so bad, you know? And they just like, they just never go away, you know? It's like, I think that the president should just clean up this whole mess here. He should just flush it right down the fucking toilet. Well, uh, I think I know what you mean, Travis. Well, it's great because the the the, the scene works so well because uh, you know De Niro like like he 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 he's trying like he starts he like you could see the smile on his face he's he's got the courage I think things are going well yeah, with Betsy yeah. and he goes oh my, my luck I've got Senator Palantine in my exactly car. Senator and wait till I tell her wait till wait, I tell yeah, her I'm yeah. be, this is gonna be great and, yeah yeah and then you know the security guards are great because like as soon as Travis starts talking there is that bit of like whoa you do like and then Senator's like no 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 let me talk to the common <laughs> people yeah Travis mm-hmm. what do you think about the world and then yeah and then he <laughs> he goes a little too far mm-hmm. it, you can tell he's made the situation uncomfortable for everyone Palantine is is I think adept enough to kind of be like, well, we're going to do what we can, you know, and that, like, he's, he's a great he, politician. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. He, he handled that exactly as like a, a politician should or well, would <laughs> Travis. He he got uncomfortable as he was saying the, the words mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like maybe he wouldn't really admit to himself. Oh, I fucked up because he never really talks to himself like that. He he never no he, he ne- no he doesn't never, really have negative self talk. <laughs> no, I mean one, the one of the ones we get is like Betsy, Betsy, what? Damn, I forgot to ask her last yeah. name. I don't remember these things. But that's like as bad as it gets. He's not like you are a worthless. No, fucking yeah, no, asshole. he does never. Talk you like need that. to go kill. It's not no, that explicit. No, no, no. It, it, and so that would be too obvious for him and for us. Yeah, I think yeah. in those moments where 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 he like it's almost like a little bit of deflection where he might realize that he might have crossed the line a little bit too. Feels kind of bad about it, but but then kind of finds a new way to go to put that energy into. Because he shakes his hand, and then when they when Palantine leaves the kind of the car, they give Travis that little minute, like that nod to himself. He's like, "All right, all right, that mm-hmm. that, that went about as well as it could have from me." Yeah, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I handled you know, that yeah. well. Maybe there was like a little bit there, but you know, but he shook my hand. He shook my hand. I'm gonna get to tell Betsy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I love that we don't get to see him tell her because I bet yeah that's something that any other movie would show they'd show that big moment and then he got in my cab and he talked to me and he called me by my name real quick insert because we're working our way to that uh 
one of the worst first dates in all of movie history. But real quick, we he meets Iris for the first time. He does not know her name, but she jumps in the back of his cab. Yep. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. That's important because that starts a new wheel turning in Travis's brain of perhaps being someone's savior. And I also want to point this out because what does Harvey Keitel say to Jodie Foster? He says, you want to get busted? Bitch, be cool. Think Tarantino likes this movie? <laughs> Tell that bitch to be cool. Say bitch, be cool. Yes, I love that. <laughs> Stealing dialogue. Who else is in Pulp Fiction? Harvey Keitel. It's all connected, baby. And then we get that crumpled $20 bill, which is kind of a Hitchcock MacGuffin for this film because it follows Travis around, you know, and that's who he's going to pay back Iris's pimp with toward the end. But let's get to oh, this Oh, I never date. tracked that. That's cool. Oh, you didn't? No, yeah, so I the, never so really. Yeah, Ky- it makes sense. So Sport. Yeah, Sport Keitel hands him that very crumpled, crumpled 20. 20. He's like, hey, cabbie, get out of here. That's a shitload of money in summer 1975 for when you did not have a fare. Think about when we see the fares in the movies. Like oh, driving, yeah. It's like $8, $7, a $20 bill for not having to do anything. That's good for him. But he doesn't. It, he, it comes up again because he has to pay Charlie T back the five and he sees a crumple one. But that's what he gives the pimp when yep. he goes to visits, visit Iris the, for the first time. Yeah. And I always, yeah, I just, I remember even I noticed that because I was like, why did we make such a big deal of that 20 right now to the, to the pimp yeah. guy? Yeah. And I was like, huh, that now oh, that's cool. There it is. There it is. There but, it is. Yes. He has asked Betsy to a movie. Another prompt I have, not really a prompt, but I'm not. I cannot be convinced that Travis Bickle has seen a motion picture, a legitimate motion picture, which I'm not saying sometimes Sweet Susan isn't a legitimate motion picture, but I don't know if the dude has seen The Searchers, for instance, which is what his entire wardrobe is based on. <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's <laughs> really know. hard to say. I mean, he admits, like I said, like he doesn't know much about movies, he but doesn't. like it, it is something that like in his apartment, he doesn't have any like he watches TV. Like, but yeah, like, exactly. But, but not don't... even like he's watching like a bad soap opera and then like, like an American bandstand of yeah. people like walking around. It's not like, you know, in a lot of Scorsese movies, we'll see them watching like Double Indemnity or something like that. He's not yeah. watching any like known piece of cinema. And I, I do think that's all telling as well. The yeah. lack of pop music, which Scorsese mentioned, all very telling. So, yeah, he has the idea. I go to these movies. So why not take the woman I'm potentially in love with to these movies? And it, uh. Does not go well. Imagine if it did go well. Imagine if that was her vibe. Wow. She's like, this is, this is a fun night, Travis. Imagine if Q credits the end. I know, yeah. <laughs> little Travis Bickle Jr. It's like Palantine gets elected president. Poor Jodie Foster. She's not okay. No, See, she, if, someone, yep. if yep. someone's okay, then someone else has to get hurt, in, at least in Paul Schrader's world. But yes, <laughs> it, does, it does not go well. And I, I mean, her line delivery on the street to him. This is about his, you know, charming saying, let's fuck. Like yeah. I, and he, that kind of stuns him. And he's like, oh my God, I really made a mistake. And I like, Jesus Christ, I got it, taxi. Like, it's just, he really does not, it does not seem like to him that he knows he's making a mistake. Yeah. Like, this is a bad idea. She even says like, this is a dirty move. And he's like, no, a lot of couples go to these movies. Yeah. What a scene. I remember seeing that for the first time and being like, Oh boy, what what are we walking into here? What's going to happen? And then yeah, it's like the perfect reaction of her just walking out. It's a very interesting contradiction, which is something that you know he gets called out on by Jodie Foster later. But no, by Sybil Shepherd. So he walking contradiction. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Sybil yeah. Shepherd says it. Yep. And and you know because he's in this job where he sees the filth of sexuality, mm-hmm. and that's even. The whole entire thing, you know, when he's trying to get Jodie Foster out, he goes, what are you doing in this? This is this is this is this not a way for people to live. 
Mm-hmm. But yet he can go to these theaters and not see anything wrong. It's almost innocent. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's like I I I even can't really wrap my head around the way that he well, in the beginning, at least, because because you do get later when he goes back to these theaters and he's got like his you know fingers up against his forehead, he's kind of making like making the gun, gun motions, yes, yeah. you know he but but he's watching this movie, but I don't even think he's watching. Yeah, he's no, thinking he's about other gone. things. Yeah, he's but things are turning in his head. He's like gone. Yeah, yeah. But he does manage to go to these theaters to watch this content. And is not affected by it the way that he is in the real world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It is. It really lends itself to the walking contradiction thing. And it th- yep. and that is literally played out in that scene because she calls him that the previous time they've seen each other. And then, yeah, here it is. Here is Travis Bickle. Uh now we get to, I mean, we couldn't make it through the introduction of the taxi driver pod without mentioning the phone call because this is yeah. if, if we're talking about one influential scene i think the whole thing is like two minutes long 120 seconds this is one of the most influential scenes i have ever witnessed and you are right we are not pitching original ideas here this 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 nope. did not happen to just us happened to a lot of people i've heard bill Hader talk about it with with extreme passion and so articulately it was so amazing to hear that and you know, there's a number of commentaries on the Blu-ray that I have for this, and I've listened to them all. And yeah, like the reads are the same. That it's it's pathetic. That's why we can't watch. But the fact that this little movement, like it's not a complicated movement. You just maybe have a little track down, and you're moving the camera. That's it. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant. Like it. God, again, the um the po- the POV changing, not from it, we don't get a POV. The camera doesn't cut to Betsy. To Sybil Shepherd on the phone in her office or an apartment doesn't do that. It moves away from the point of view you have established. And now we kind of have full reign for real cracks to start showing. And we do, because the yep. first thing we see after that hallway, you know, you're only as healthy as you feel. He's repeating, he repeats that three times in voiceover. And then bam, he's confronting Betsy at her office and he's opening that yep. door and that strutty, charming posture that's gone now. Yeah. And he goes to like kind of fight Albert Brooks and like get your hands off me. And he's getting, you know, violent. And yeah, now we're really starting to see cracks emerge in within his psyche because, you know, here's stuff coming out. But is it military? No, I don't think so, so. That's what I mean. Yeah, it no, because that's what I mean. Because he, yeah. he takes that stance and it almost looks like a karate type it of does. stance. It, yeah, it looks like he's seen, like, maybe this is how a Marine or Green Beret would, like, pretend to get someone in a hold. But, yeah, it's more like a karate stance. It doesn't – I have even attributed in my writing about this film that he adopts, like, a military-like fighting stance. Like, because that's what I thought yeah. it was. But I don't think it is. I just think he's like yeah. – maybe maybe he's seen, like, some kung fu movies in passing. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. But I don't think that's something that necessarily teach you in the military, that stance. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, yeah. And, 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 or it just could be, like, what he physically did in that moment. Yeah. But even still, if mm-hmm. – if you had military training and you were worked up to that level and someone's about to fight, something tells me you wouldn't just instinctively just make that pose. Right. Like your right. training would come into some level. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You might even be a little clearer headed if you had that training. But yes, yes, yes. I, yeah. But OK, so now we're starting to see cracks. So his personal, his romantic life is cracked. He had this 
terrible date. He that that's not going to come back. We have we know now that we've seen the movie a bunch. It's it, it ain't going to work out, and we can feel even for watching it for the first time. He steered this off course. Now he has officially ruined it for himself by going and showing flashes of violence. So these this is his doing. Now the next scene is where we get our director cameo. And this is a really yep. important sequence because this is really the first time that Travis Bickle has felt fear. And this is the first time he's like, yeah, I will drive any time of night. I'll go anytime, anywhere. But now I got this little dude talking about killing his wife with a 44 Magnum pistol. And it, does he have this gun on him? He's sitting behind me. Like, what's yeah. going on? So this is like a very important scene, at least story-wise. I think this is what it's, you know, it's all tracking to where it's leading to, to, you know, buying his arsenal of guns. So that's well, like story-wise for the movie. And then there's just a shitload yep. of fun trivia about this scene. <laughs> well, and and it goes to show you too, like that, like because Martin Scorsese says the 44 Magnum, mm-hmm. when he goes to the gun, it's the first yes. thing he asks for. First so gun. He, Do you have a 44 so, Magnum? Yes. Yes. Scorsese's character. Fucking hand cannon. Uh, yeah. Which I don't think he expected. I don't no, think he knew no. what it was. Right. Which again would lead to the idea that he doesn't have military training. No um, military training, no movie experience. Yeah. 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 Yep. So, yeah. So, Scorsese's character could have said any gun and he would have led with that. Right. But going to this uh, uh, scene, I'm sure you know this story too that Scorsese talks always about how this scene taught him a lot about acting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Be- because, uh, you know, you've got the dialogue the way it is. And, you know, he's, he's basically the whole scene is Scorsese just telling De Niro like little things like, don't do this, mm-hmm. don't do that. Put the, keep the fair going, keep the fair going. Don't put it down, don't put it down. But he's actually giving him actions like mm-hmm. put, the, put this meter back up. So De Niro look has up to here. Uh, yeah, yeah, look up there. Yeah. Doing things where De Niro has to do what he says and De Niro uh, wouldn't do them out of fear. Mm-hmm. Or that's where he that's where he's playing the thing mm-hmm. and Scorsese was like what, what like I got to fight harder. And so he's like so De Niro taught me that like you know it's it's all about the actor going with with what they need. I need this guy to put the fare back up. So I'm just going to keep badgering and badgering and get weirder and weirder in my behavior mm-hmm. to get what I need. And, you know, he's already made these choices. He definitely seems like he's on certain drugs. He certainly does. And and <laughs> and he's definitely a certain he's in a certain state because of his circumstance. So he's living really in his character's behavior. And De Niro is just reacting off of it. Yeah. And in the moment, making Scorsese have to work harder to get yeah. what he wants. And it's just it's beautiful. It's 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 one of the most uncomfortable scenes you can watch for so many reasons. But to and I think it's because you see Scorsese in this state and fighting to get that meter up. Look over here. Don't answer this question. No, no, no. Answer it. I know. I know you must think that I'm. You know, <laughs> you must think I'm pretty sick or something. You know, you must think I'm pretty sick, right? You must think I'm pretty sick. Hmm? <laughs> right? I bet. I bet you really think I'm sick, right? You think I'm sick? <laughs> you think I'm sick? 
You don't have to answer. I'm paying for the fare. You don't have to answer. Yeah. <laughs> no, it does. It yeah. does. It's all um, that. This that you should see. That you, you should see. see. Yeah. I'm not gonna. <laughs> yeah. Some of the. Yeah. Uh, uh, God. What a what a scene. Um. All right. Let me start. Let me start with this. This was this role was cast. And if we go back to yeah. Mean Streets, we know our our Mook, our main Mook, that guy in the bar, the big big dude who owns the bar, who calls him a Mook. That this was his role, and he was supposed to play this part, and he was cast and. I don't know. I've heard any number of things of why he wasn't on the street that day to be in the movie that he was, like I said, indisposed, maybe with substances, maybe I do not know. But Marty was trying to find other people around. Can you do it? Can you do it? And he just can't find the right person. They don't have time to go out and like audition. They're filming it. So, okay, he has to do it. And, you know, Marty was in Mean Streets. He had a small but critical role toward the end of that. He pops up a little bit in it. Yeah, he's but this is different because this is like you're saying, like, Travis Bickle says two words. He repeats, yeah, very, very gently. And that's it. The yeah. rest is. And he said, like, Bob had to work a lot with me to get to draw the performance out of me. And we did it. And it worked. And of course, some of the language he's using is deplorable and gross. And I hate hearing it. Oh, man. And I think that's the point. I think it's very, very intentionally used. But yeah, what, what a scene. And he's, I mean, he's really good in it. He's very terrifying. Not because it's Scorsese, I mean, not because he's Mr. Smooth. He's Mr. Charming Hitman because he's wirely little dude who could have a 44 magnum pistol in the back of his pants right now like you really could yep. it's a great it's a it's a great scene you're right it's not like bickle is afraid right away it's not like de niro's playing it like oh my god i'm so scared no but they're, the wheels are turning like i need to maybe protect protect myself because i've already been asked i think Doughboy asked him do you have a piece do you carry you yep. know a gun and he's like no i don't know he seems like again leading to the non-military thing. He doesn't seem familiar with weaponry at all, really. And and his motions are just very slow. He's like, I'm yeah. just not going to move. He doesn't seem like paralyzed or petrified. It's just he's very aware mm-hmm. of what's happening and just, yeah, just kind of sitting in it. And because Scorsese's making him, he's like, don't yeah. move. Don't do this. Don't, don't move. do that. Yeah. We get that yep. great shot yep. from behind his head where we're just studying like the back of Travis's and, head. In the car. The, th- oh. the the thing I always like to think about with that scene is how, because they, they cut from it. Mm-hmm. How long were they sitting there? It's a great how question. How long until Scorsese left? Like how, like it clearly, I don't think Bickle kicked him out. I think we would have seen a, a scene like that. But at some point, Scorsese's character would have been like, all right, now take me here. Or would have been like, all right, I'm going to get out of the car. Yeah. I think it would, I think we also would have known if that, that, act that Scorsese was talking about was committed. I think we would have found that out. Mm-hmm. But I think it was mostly just about living in the uncomfortable tension of that scene and then yeah. having it just go nowhere. It right. just was lived in. And then now he's and, and coming up to one of my favorite scenes of the whole entire movie when he's talking to Wizard. Now the wheels are turning where he's like, okay, that nothing did happen that time. But it might yeah. happen again and it could it could happen tomorrow. It could happen. It could be my next fair. I could pick up another yep. twitchy psychopath. And I always love in movies when the psycho we're watching has to engage with another like psycho and watching yep. our psycho who we're kind of being adhered to be like, wow, this guy's fucking crazy, man. It's like, no, you're yeah. crazy too, Travis. I love that. Yeah, let, let, let's get right to it. He goes back to the cafeteria, asks wizard Peter Boyle for a chat and uh, Travis tries. He tries to communicate. He to tries. Confess. He doesn't. He's not very good at it. Pete. I mean, De Niro and Boyle are so good in the scene. You know, you, things got you down. Yeah, things got me real down. It's just Peter Boyle's trying to give him, you know, this cabbie street 
talk, you know, just this influence, like, you know, kind of, kind of pick yourself up, kid, get out there. It's kind of that type of thing. Like you do your job, you work a job. And as far as, you know, fledging psychopaths go, this is about as close to a confession as you're going to get. And it just doesn't, I, I don't know what Travis wanted to hear in that moment, but you know, well, he tries. Well, that's, <laughs> that's what I love the most about the scene is that Travis is trying. He, this is a pure cry for help. Yep. And, and Peter Boyle it, it can't do it. Like, Mm-mm. that's what I love more is that, I mean, Peter Boyle is coming from a good, his character is coming from a good point. Like, he's like, yeah, he's at, he's saying like this, like, he can't comprehend that Travis Bickle's in the situation he's in. So he's just given, yeah, keep your head up. But he knows it's not working. Yeah. And I love that both of them fail. Like, I love that De Niro gets the courage up to actually ask the only person that he feels in this moment that he can actually talk to about this thing and doesn't get what he needs. Mm-mm. Th- these are my favorite scenes. My favorite oh, yeah. scenes ever is are when characters fight for something. And this is not fighting, but when I say fighting, it's that they're going after something. They mm-hmm. need something and they don't get it. And this is such a good example of it because the person who fails is not De Niro. It's actually Boyle's character. Yeah. Boyle fails in tr- in giving – he tries also. He's trying mm-hmm. to give Travis what he needs, but that's not it. And then he walks away and you can even see like the way he's like, all right, well, I don't think that really went well, but uh, you know, keep your head up. I got to go. And, yeah, he's like, and, I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. like, I don't know. It, and that is makes you feel even more like that makes Travis Bickle feel even more lonely. Yeah, is of course. Like, I because he tried. Oh. Like he's he's I'm, these streets are getting a little dangerous. I kind of messed things up with my my lady. She never was your lady, but maybe he <laughs> liked to think she was. And yeah, he's just things are down, and he doesn't know he doesn't know how to communicate about anything. So it's like next few the next little snippet scene. I want to mention this. It's the I call it the apartment dining scene. Is this is. <laughs> This is the scene in the script that convinced Bernard Herman to score the movie because it said Travis sits there eating bread soaked in peach brandy with sugar on top and milk. What a meal. What a I love that. And Bernard Herman reads that. He's like, all right, I like it. I'll do it. I don't do movies about cabbies, but I'll score. I mean, what's it about? What's it about? <laughs> he goes and uh, meets Iris again. It's when he almost hits her with the car and we get that great little sting from the music. Like, yeah. And yeah. then a really important line of voiceover comes into play that has all to do with not getting what he wanted from the wizard in that confession. And he says, there is no escape. I am God's lonely man, yeah. which is a Paul Schrader line if I have ever heard one. And right after, he goes and buys some guns. Lots of guns. Yep. This yep. is a great scene. <laughs> it's a great so scene. It really Isn't is. And that little honey? Isn't that little honey? Uh, easy it is Andy. all because of that actor. Like, yeah, Stephen Prince. Beauty? Oh, my God. He's essentially, essentially playing a version of himself. He was just a, a wheeler and dealer around New York. I guess he was like a band manager for, I, I think, Neil Young for a little bit. I learned that from that American Boy documentary that I talked about. And then a little honey. How much for everything? Uh, all together. Well, only a jackass would carry that cannon in the streets like that. Here. Here's a beautiful... Handmade holster I had made in Mexico. Forty dollars. Three fifty for the Magnum. Two fifty for the thirty-eight. One and a quarter for the twenty-five. One fifty for the three-eighty. You take this. Oh wait, here I'll walk down with you. How about dope? 
grass, ash, coke, mescaline, downers, nebutol, tonal, chloral hydrates. How about uh, uppers, amphetamines? No, I'm not interested in that stuff. Crystal meth, I can get you crystal meth. Nitrous oxide. How about that? How about a Cadillac? I get your brand new Cadillac with the pink slip for two grand. Yeah. That's all him. And it's like, Travis like, I don't want well, any of that. It's like, great. It's so good. That's my favorite part <laughs> because that shows you his character. Because up until that point, he's actually really smooth. Like, this is a salesman. He's, yep. But as soon as Travis spends money and he's actually taken home like hundreds, if not thousands of dollars worth of guns when he totaled that whole entire amount up. He's now a guy who smells blood, mm-hmm. and and he's like, because his because he's almost desperate when he starts talking about the drugs. Yeah, he's like, you want this, you want this. Like now that I know you got money and you you bought this, what do you want about this? Because then De Niro says no, he blows right past it. Yeah, he doesn't and just care. more. And and I was like, oh man, like in a weird way, like that disappointed me. Like I don't know why. It like I just was like, man, like this was a business transaction, but now. You're just lowly scum. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. That's I mean, as he, if he was anything yeah. else to begin with. But but even still, like I was like, oh man, like you're just you're just you're just like all the rest. When <laughs> he goes, only a jackass would carry a cannon in the streets like that. <laughs> so he gives him the holster. It's so good. Oh, he's got all this forty stuff. bucks. Yeah. Forty bucks though. Yeah, he charges forty bucks. Them. The uh, the sound design of that scene. Something something uh, Scorsese does a lot. He'll have like kids playing in the background. You just hear the streets alive. This is during oh, yeah. the love scene in Raging Bull when they're kind of making out in the bed. It's the only oh, thing yeah. you can hear outside are the kids. And he does that. And then he just holds the gun, an empty gun, but he holds that gun out. And we're like slowly tracking across the window well, with the gun. And you're like, oh, fuck, man. Where's this going? Well, this is to me, this is actually one of the most disturbing scenes of the whole entire movie because where he lands he actually lands on people yeah with the pointing the gun yeah and it just adds this element of thinking like you could just be out on the street and you may not even know it but someone's pointing a gun at you yeah you know and but this is like if you're going into the headspace of where this guy is going, that's where it's going. Exactly. And this is what I I appreciate about the movie that like this is where I feel like this conversation in the beginning of the podcast starts to go, where people get uncomfortable mm-hmm. because it is uncomfortable. But like if we're really being honest about where this guy is at, still not advocating, but just showing like, nope, like he's aiming. He's, he's slipping. Yeah, he's slipping. He's, and he's aiming. Yeah. He is taking aim yep. and uh, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. So there are a lot of influences that Scorsese used for Taxi Driver. The Searchers by John Ford. There's Diary of a Country Priest. I watched a lot of these. Uh, the Wrong Man by Alfred Hitchcock. One that I never heard of was a movie in, made in 1958 called Murder by Contract, directed by Irvin Lerner, starring Vince Edwards. This, I mean, I found it on YouTube. Like, it, it's a short movie. Go put this on because... It, it, they're one-to-one scene comparisons of Vince Edwards, like working out in his apartment, doing these little pull-ups to watching Bickle work out. And it's just, it's so cool. Like as soon as I turn Murder by Contract on, it's a really early scene. And I was like, oh, this is where he got it from. Ah, I love that. I always, always love tracking back those references, but I love that. You know, when he's working out, he's holding his hand above the flame. Every muscle must be tight. I don't, what does that do? We both like exercise. What would holding, is he just trying to maintain the flex I, and and try I, to, it looks cool, but I, I'm not sure what, is he trying to harden his skin or like, what, what, do, what I, do we think he's doing there? I think that he's trying to handle pain. 
Sure. Okay. That works. I that think, works too. I, I think that's that's yeah. what it is. Of I don't know what the flexing is. Maybe it's just because you're you're just you're just trying to like you know withstand. Right. But that's what I kind of got from it. Was like, yeah. all right, let's, let's 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 work up this pain tolerance. And I love process. So watching him build all that shit out, making the guns, making oh, the knife yeah. holder, making the thing on his arm, all the sound effects that each gun the has. Sounds. It's like, oh, it's perfect. It's perfect. So now he's ready. We've seen like we're an hour into the movie. The switch has probably been flipped in his head. He's got all this stuff. So <laughs> just go, goes for a stroll, watches one of Palantine's speeches, and just moseys on up to a Secret Service agent. One of the funniest scenes. Like, this is Scorsese's humor to me. Just the way, like, you know, slowly saunters up to him and just, you know, I, I love this scene. That I call it the Henry Crinkle scene, like a secret signal for Secret Service. And, you know, just look at it, like smiling with that goofy stuff. And I, yeah, I love this. I love, there's a very quick when he's like, you know, I saw some suspicious, some suspicious looking people and it jump cuts. Oh, yeah. And he's out of frame and then he walks into frame and he's in it, but like he's turned a different direction. It's just, it's a great little disorienting tactic. And uh, the, like the awkwardness, but that he he's also like playing Henry Crinkle, like he's playing a part. He's going out to try to, I don't know, get some info about the Secret Service. It's just great. Is there a zip code for that, Henry? Yeah, 610452. Okay. That's uh, six digits. Six one. Oh, well, 61045. Okay. I was thinking of my telephone number. Well, I've got it all. Henry, we'll get all the stuff right out of you. Thanks a lot. Hey, great. Thanks a lot. Help. Jesus. Be careful today. Right, we'll do. You have to be careful around a place like this. Bye. Right after Henry Crinkle, we're back in the apartment. The streets are going. We hear a clock ticking. One of the most iconic scenes in all of cinema, that's an objective statement. No one, you can hate this movie. You know what yeah. you're talking to me is. You may not know the movie yeah. it's from, but you've heard of it. One of the most famous scenes in cinema history was fucking improvised by the lead actor. Yep. It's astounding. I And, you know, Scorsese's just on, literally laying on the floor with the cameraman, Michael Chapman. Like, they're laying there, and he's just going, do it again, Bob. Do more, do more, do more. They did that. It took them, like, just a couple minutes to do, and that was it. It was Travis looks in the mirror. That's what's in the script. I, it... <laughs> You got to wonder if you know on the day, you know, you got to wonder if it's like, we have something, but do you know, like, I, I, I don't know. You can't handle the truth. I, like, do you know, like, holy shit, this is one of those, here's looking at you, kid. Like, do they know that this is one that's going to last forever? This improvised line of dialogue is going to be the biggest thing from this movie. This is the thing that people will remember more than anything is this improvised line of dialogue. Do they know it? I don't know. It's just Amazing. I would, based on the way that De Niro always talks about this scene, because he hates when people bring this up. He hates it, yeah. <laughs> I would gather that they probably didn't. Right. Like, only because every time he's, he's talked about it, he goes, I don't understand. Like, we just did that, like, in front of the mirror, and right. I said some stuff, and now it's become this thing. I So that would lead me to believe that on the day, I don't think everyone was like... Same here. That's what I mean. Same Whoa. here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just, that's it's just crazy to go. Like it, you didn't even know. It just happened uh, on by accident on the day. But Ugh. to your point earlier about the sound, this yeah. was the I don't know how I've never really picked up on it, but it was this time watching it. 
I was so infatuated with the outside sounds that are going on. Oh, yeah. I was oh, yeah. like more. I was like, oh, wow, this really is like he's just in his room right now playing pretend. Yeah. While this, with his there's new toys. kids outside playing right. with his new toys. And I just never really focused on the sound before this mm-hmm. last rewatch. And I was like, oh, man, this scene is even. I think I was in the actual scene today more than I was in the iconic moment that it's become. Because I think every time I've watched this movie, we get to this scene Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, here we are. We're at the are you talking to me bit. And I never actually took in the scene for what it was. Today, I think I actually did for the very first time. Where I, was I think that's very like, common. Very common. Yeah. Because something else happens. You're like, all right, this is that scene that I've seen a million times, whether it's million an Oscar montage. It. anywhere. Yeah. 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 But this was the first one where I was like, man, this guy is, there's a whole world going on outside and he's just pretending he's talking to himself and he's playing with guns. Like, this is... This isn't good. (laughs) No, and I think I read, I think this is right, that they just had, you know, that's not ADR dialogue. They didn't re-loop that. And Scorsese was nervous that they could, the microphone was going to pick up the street too much. So he's like, Bob, talk louder, talk louder, say it again, say it again. And now we're talking about how that accident that, you know, we we always try to get street noise out of our shots when when they're set in apartments. You you want it quiet, everyone quiet. And they're just letting that in. And again, it has... It makes the city feel like a living, breathing organism. This is one of the best. Yep. Uh, it's not a love letter, but it's one of the best movies about New York that will ever be made. And it's about a da- yep. very dangerous time and place in New York. But here is. All right. You're yep. talking to me. He's psyched himself up. He's played the role. Now he's going to go out. He doesn't go looking for trouble, but he seems to go to his favorite bodega. Oh, he knows the guy. Hey, Travis, how's it going? That guy speaks in Spanish. It's Victor Argo. But it, it's interesting that he seems to be socialized with him as a, I don't know if he's playing a person of color. I'm not sure. But anyway, it just they have a nice rapport going in. You know, they know each other. And a guy comes to rob it. A black man comes to rob the bodega. Travis is he's squared up. This, this is what he's waited for. This is why you bought all your toys. Yep. This is what's going on. And he doesn't really give the guy a warning. He pulls the gun, says, hey, the guy faces him and he shoots him dead, shoots him down. And it's a really interesting scene to me for its callousness and how cold it is yeah. and how there's not like he again, he did not go looking for it. This isn't Batman. Nope. He didn't go out, try to fight justice. But when injustice is upon him, he immediately goes to kill. That's that's what I do. I kill. The fact that it is a person of color is obviously very telling. I don't know if this would have happened if it was a white person. These are all questions we're supposed to have. But. And of course, the way the owner plays it, Victor Argo, like, yeah, just get, give me, give me a piece. Come on, get out of here. And he's like, this is the fucking third time this week. It's like, Jesus yeah. Christ. Like, yeah, I, I mean, a really good scene. And now the violence is no longer thought about. It's no longer suggested or hinted at. It is here. And where are we going to go from here? And this is actually one of my favorite cuts. Ooh, which cut? It is the, cause right from that, because like, there's that the great moment of little awkwardness oh, where he's like, you know, I, I, I don't know. have a permit for this, you know, and, and, you know, so he's just, you know, whether or not this guy's dead or not, like you, it's hard to say that if you've committed murder, but yes, to you, what you just said is that violence has now become realized mm-hmm. and then it cuts to the music. It's yep. one of the few times that we actually hear music. Jackson and, Brown, I think. Yeah. And that was very. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Cause I shazammed it. 
Okay, yeah, very very deliberate. That was like the only quote unquote needle drop because he's watching TV. Yeah, and and there seems to be an element now where it is very very clear that we well Travis has made a big step forward in the progression that he's going in, and it's not good, but it is a step forward in it. And you know he's not like happy. He's not anything really, but. There is a certain element of victory or like some type of, you know, what I'm trying to say, well, when he's watching people, presumably his age, dance together on TV, he watches it like he's watching a National Geographic documentary about a civilization he's never heard of. Yeah, there's contempt, anger, rage brewing over within him, but also a notable blankness because it's like, yeah, I don't know, man, if I shoot someone whether i've killed them or not Uh whether it was quote-unquote justified or not i'm flipping the fuck out about it the next day and i'm pacing my apartment what did i do oh my god i maybe just took a life this is a big deal no he's like watching american bandstand or whatever it is listening to jackson brown like he's listening to music (laughs) listening to music playing with his hand cannon because that's what people his age would do right they just sit here watch tv music um, there's a disassociation that I think we're yes. really starting to see creep in. That's what I mean. I yeah. I guess really for me it is like that. It is that step forward. Like yeah. there is a level of we've we've leveled up here mm-hmm. in the, mm-hmm. in this madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, leveled up in the madness, which we've already mentioned it. But then it's one of our <laughs> one of the funniest scenes in the movie to me is the I call it the love Travis scene. Just the letter to his parents, like I hope. That no one has died. And yeah. you know, we get around his apartment and we see that I gotta get organized. He's like got that uh-huh. stuff, even though Betsy's long gone, pal. But he's just and then the card is ridiculous. It's like big, it's a cartoon, it's something that like an eight-year-old might receive, or like, you know, your aunt takes you to Hallmark on the day before your mom's birthday. Like, that's the kind of card you pick out for your mom. Not like if you're a 30-year-old man sending a le- I-, I don't know. I've always, even from my first viewing con. Is that real? Are these people real? Is he like, or I mean, maybe it is. Maybe there's a, he just didn't get, didn't get on at home. I don't know. There's a whole backstory that I love to go through that I've never heard anyone talk about, including any of the creators, but there's just little pockets of backstory I like to create for him just on my own that informs that it's not real. It's, it's cinema speculation, but it's fun to do. That's all. All right. I have one. It's a little bit further ahead of here, but I don't want to forget it. So I'm going to bring it up now because it's not a huge deal, but it's in the vein of what we're talking about. Why does Travis like this is more about when he's right about to do the the where get to the very end. Why does he have all these flowers in his? I in his think. Home? Yeah, I because like the flowers are killing me and then he starts to burn them. I think he has tried to send that to Betsy and they have literally been returned to sender. OK, like if yep. he's sending bouquet after bouquet of roses or flowers to her office she's not going to accept those but that's the only place he knows how to send them he doesn't know where she lives thank god yeah i think he's probably sending them and she's telling she's saying get those the fuck out of here i don't want them this was a bad dude send them back that's always been my read on it so those are flowers he brought bought for her that have been returned to sender so he burns them as like kind of a Almost be, a religious ceremony. Because there's that one scene where in the background, there's a shit ton. <laughs> shit ton. That's what I think he sent all of those to her. Yeah. And they all uh, came back and he doesn't want to throw them away. And, you know, the yeah. st- I think I got stomach cancer. Like the, sm- the flowers started killing me. I think I got stomach cancer. Just all- Yeah. So that's always been oh. my read on it. Yes. Yes. Uh, but now that Betsy's gone, now that violence has been started, he's been spying. He's been observing. Not spying. He's been observing 
this teenage prostitute, Iris, played by Jodie Foster. He's had a few interactions with her, but now he goes and approaches her. It's not that she's getting in his cab. He goes and approaches her, and that leads to a meeting of Scar. Here we have, or that, whoops, that leads to a meeting yeah. of Sport, who is emulated very heavily off the character Scar from The Searchers, as is Travis Bickle. A lot of his wardrobe is modeled after John Wayne in that film. The Searchers is about John Wayne trying to find his niece after she's been kidnapped. Kind of sounds familiar. He's got to go and rescue her. The language that Kaitel uses in this scene is just like appalling. It's disgusting. I mean, at first it's kind yeah. of amusing, like, hey, copper, like, I'm clean, I'm clean, you know. But then when he switches to pimp talk, you're like, wow. And I, I remember the whole time watching this, the first time going, where is this going? Is, oh, my God, because this movie could go anywhere. Like, is he really paying this guy off to go have relations with this young girl? Like, oh, my God, this can't. Please don't let this happen. I love how he goes, you know, I'm hip. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're hip, buddy. Like, Travis Bickle ain't hip and that's just i i like i love this scene my favorite part of the scene is when he goes into the brothel because obviously that's foreshadowing where we're going where we're going to end up but just that whole interaction he has with her when you're like oh wow we've already seen this dude kill somebody but now he's showing this like different side where he wants to save her like okay it's again it's this conflict it's this contradiction like yeah it seems like he's trying to do something good here like yeah we're we're meant to hate sport as bickle does and i love all that it's just you know here we go. We're, he's kind of like plotting together his plan. What's going to happen? Yeah. I think at this point, he just wants to leave her money. I think he just wants to leave Iris money and go kill Palantine and presumably die by suicide. But the wheels are turning. The wheels are turning. I love when they go out to eat together. You're full of shit, man. The way he's talking <laughs> to Jodie Foster. Like, you're not hip. I, oh, I love it. In, in all of these things that De Niro's character is Travis Bickle is doing, I, I, I dare say there is an innocence to all of it. No, it's like, like a fatherly stance. He he yeah. becomes like a father, like a protector. But, There's no like, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I agree. Throughout throughout the whole entire movie, all this guy is trying to do is he's trying to do better. He's trying to better himself. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get himself a girl because that's, you know, a healthy thing for a stable person to do. He does it doesn't go well and he ends up in a bad spot. But then like there's almost like these goals. <laughs> like he's actually like a very goal-oriented person. And then he sees a purpose and then goes for it. And the purpose is actually good. Like he's trying to get this a teenage girl out of harm. Mm-hmm. And yet all the methods that he goes about doing it are all wrong and bad. Right. But it's all grounded in some kind of innocent goodness here. It's just so m- twisted and mutated. And that's, I think, the tragedy of it all. But I just want to put that out there. No, I agree. I agree. It, it is. It's his, his heart is in the right place as uh, yeah. twisted he's a as good his guy. heart is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is. There are parts of him that he, he's good. Again, a walking contradiction. Like, yep, yep. this is a good thing that he's doing, that he's trying to save this teenage girl from this he is the worst scum sucking piece of i love that fury he has when talking about sport i love that uh after travis and iris meet and she just pours all that sugar on her bread it's like hey who who else does this buddy with a little peach brandy on top we get one of two scenes that travis actually is not present for the first was the first meeting of albert brooks and civil shepherd but travis is like watching them from afar and in this one we see him it, the idea is that he's supposed to be waiting outside of the apartment. So he's like observing the apartment. But then we get that extended scene between Harvey Keitel and Jodie Foster. And it's, oh, God, it's so gross. It's oh, such a it's grimy so scene. 
but it's really, really important because it helps us yeah. understand like she is manipulated perfectly every hour yep. of every day by sport. I mean, he's got that long pinky nail for drugs. Oh, it's like a, it's so a great gross. touch, but so, so gross. But just how gentle he is with her. It said, you know, the first time we met him, he was like, do you want to get busted and pretend and not pretending, threatening to beat the shit out of her? Now there's this gentle side. So we're just seeing that manipulation. And yeah, this could work presumably I, on a 12, 13 year old girl living on her own in New York. I wonder if there was a thought in the writing and everything, because this is the one scene because you're even right about like even when we see Sybil and Albert Brooks. Bickles outside looking at them. Right. So we're still right. seeing it, even though he can't hear what we're hearing. But the idea that he's right there and we're right there. But this is the one scene where Bickles not a part of it. Right. Uh, maybe he's outside the building, but he certainly well, can't see. He's and honestly, they stole that shot and inserted that from somewhere else. That's not even he wasn't Robert uh, yeah. was not out there. That shot wasn't yeah. filmed right before that, but they added it in. But they talked about this scene a lot because they're like, this is a cheat. This is the only time this we is leave huge Travis. So then their compromise was, OK, we put him in the street outside. So he's a, at least his presence is there. His and we know that there. he cannot hear or see them, but his presence. But yeah, he is not. He's not there. He's not present for the scene. Yeah, there. I, there must have been such an in the writing. Or there, there must have been such a conversation about like how do we communicate? Because we need this. We need to see how she's yes. manipulated, and right. also, unfortunately, like her love for him. Like because mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. really is attached. So we need to see that. But like that question of how do we get this in here without betraying what we have started and we can't veer away from and then mm -hmm. just kind of deciding well fuck it like yeah we'll throw travis outside in, in, in an right. insert type thing but still breaking that rule because you feel it you do uh -huh. like uh -huh. you, like you feel like this scene for its content but also in terms of the narrative structure doesn't belong but we need it so i love the fact that they went and did it because it's sort of like Structure and formula dictate that this scene should be cut, but right. we need it for certain reasons and we understand that there's nothing really we can do because we can't have an intimate scene outside. We can't have this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, in Bickle's like thing here. So we just got to cut it. We just got to do it. I love, I love it. I, I love think it. it's I think it was a it's a good call. It is. It takes a lot of confidence to do that, too. After that, this I've already mentioned it, but we get. My favorite character reveal in film history. We've already met Travis Bickle, met him for like an hour and a half. But when he arrives at Palantine's speech, he gets out of the cab. We're all like at hip level. And we go over and it's just his waist. And we go up and reveal that mohawk. I, I still like every time I see that, I like gasp. And I'm like, oh, my oh, God, yeah. he looks so scary. It is so fucking effective to see. I mean, and that's not even his real hair. That's what's crazy. No, he I immediately know. had to it go make good. another movie. Yeah, they had to put like a cap on him and they they got it brought in a Dick Smith to do it like this, you know, famous makeup artist. And they were, you know, really trying for it. And they did a test and it worked. And it is so effective. He just looks like a different person. You're like, here finally is Travis Bickle. People are going to know my name because I'm about to go kill this presidential candidate. Here we go. Oh, it's iconic. I, I can only can you imagine what it must have been like if you were in the audience in 1976 at a movie theater where you didn't have like a trailer that gave that look away and all of a sudden that camera shoots up and you catch that? I, I would have been like, oh, 
Oh, oh I, I would have okay. gasped. Yeah, I would have gasped yeah. aloud. It would have been, oh my God, it would have oh, been wild. That and been that's a great, great scene moment. because he's, oh yeah, <laughs> because he's there. He's, you know, this is what he's meant to do. He's meant to go do the, he's meant to go assassinate Palatine. And I love that that has never been stated implicitly. It's not like he's announcing this in his journals, which I appreciate. But then it doesn't go well. Things He gets spotted by the mm-hmm. security guard. He freezes up. He runs away. He's chased a little bit. So that takes him to the brothel. And when, he, when Travis Bickle arrives at the brothel at the end of Taxi Driver, Paul Schrader's ethos for the film finally comes to fruition, because this is what Schrader always says Taxi Driver is about. The girl he desires, he cannot have. The one he can have, he cannot desire. When he can't kill the father figure of one, he kills the father figure of the other. It's a very Paul Schrader way to encapsulate his movie but that's what happens here he doesn't get to kill palatine the father figure of sybil shepherd so he goes and kills scum sucking sport yeah. and i mean god and as soon as he gets out of the cab on the street you can already tell the colors different because in order to not be rated oh X, yeah they had to take damn near all the color out for all the blood in the end and that is you can really see that like high contrast low saturation and then you know they just go up on that they go up on that damn stoop and i love Actually, if you pay attention, right as the scene begins, that guy who goes up and talks to Sport, Sport gives him money. So I guess that guy is actually like Sport's boss. This is the dude that Bickle's going to, he's going to shoot Bickle in the arm, but that guy goes away. But yeah, I mean, I love Kaitel. Like, go back to your fucking tribe, man. And he's like, suck on this and boom, just gets it right in the belly. And of, of course, Travis, you know, he shoots Sport in the belly and of course he doesn't run away. He just goes and has a sit, just goes and sits down for a little yeah. bit, needs a little break. Like, what do I do? What do I do? And then, oh my God, walking into the brothel, we get, I'm not going to do like a play-by-play, like it's a sports yeah, scene yeah. or something, but it's just, um, I'll never forget the first time I saw it and watching it today. I've I've watched this twice, per, like when we were watching all of our Scorsese's in the past through three weeks. And then I watched it this morning, knowing, knowing that we were going to do it today. And it's still, it's just as thrilling. My heart pounds. All the beats of it, the slow motion going up the stairs. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. And, you know. And I mean this with like, it, it's so sloppy. Like, yeah. But it's so good. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's every time I've watched this scene, I am always kind of in awe of the fact of how messy and like, because it's not a put together scene like you would see today. Like, if, if we were to be like, like the departed, if we're just mm-hmm. kind of fast forward and you're kind of looking at the way that that end scene goes with the violence and the blood and the gunplay and all this and that it's polished and, mm-hmm. um, and it's good for its movie, but this is one where it's like everything it, it it's all off. It's all off in a very, yeah. very stylistic way, but it's also like, well, this was the movie making for a low budget type thing. But with all of that, the, the point that I'm making is, is that it's, so damn effective yeah to the point where you 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 watch it over and over and you're like fuck it really feels like how it would go down if it was in real life because there's no like professional headshots going on like he shoots harvey Keitel in the belly but unlike a trained military professional he does not kill him he walks away from him harvey Keitel is going to end up shooting him in the neck because he didn't take him down he kills the main guy the guard he shoots the main guy the guard with the hand cannon blows off his hand so that's what i'm yeah that's what we mean it's messy bagel gets shot in the neck the guy comes out and shoots him in his like arm like that we don't see that a lot he shoots the guy in the face a bunch of times and it, everything is it's just it's chaos and it's messy yep and then going in and just seeing 
Jodie Foster, I mean, I love the slow-mo cuts of her, like, yeah. turning around and then her being, don't kill him, don't kill him, and he just, boom. I mean, of course, he, you know, he gets the knife out, stabs it through the guy's hand, so we're getting to see all the all the tricks, all the things he built come out, uh, all, the tr- all the tools that he needed to be utilized, he's using them. And then, right there, I just, I thought the movie was going to be done, this is it. And then he pulls his gun on himself, and it's blank, mm-hmm. finds another gun, and it's blank. And then the cops show up. The music's blaring. And I'm like, what? Is this guy going to die? Like, what? It, and he doesn't. We get. And this is, I mean, we're leading right up to the ending here. But this is, speaking of Alzheimer's, it's my favorite ending to a movie ever. I can't imagine anything else topping it because we take a long time to leave that apartment. We're tracking it through yeah. the ceiling. Took them months to build that, to, you know, cut out the ceiling so that the camera can move up there. Then we're out on the street and we're just going up, up, up. We're ascending, we're ascending. And I I just would have bet the movie was done. I remember like almost reaching for the remote being like, okay, this is going to be done soon. And then we get this like, this coda. We go back into his apartment and now Travis Bickle is fucking glorified as a hero. Yeah. The parents of Iris are writing him. You're somewhat of a hero in our household. You're welcome to our home anytime. There's clippings on the wall. There's no mention of killing a guy in a bodega. There's no mention of almost assassinating a presidential candidate. There's no mention of stalking a woman who works for Palantine. There's no mention of any of this. He's He's a hero. And I never, ever would have guessed that. That this guy yeah. I've been watching for an hour and 45 minutes will be glorified as a fucking hero. That's the first part of the ending. So why don't we start with the stuff in the apartment, you know, the clippings on the wall before we go to his final cab ride. It's one of my favorite voiceovers. Whoever that actor is that did oh, that voice. so good. There's, there's like in a certain way that he takes his time with certain words. It's almost like there's even like a little bit of like not an impediment, but like a, mm-hmm. a stutter. Yeah. And um I, I it's one of the the most listenable voiceovers. I love it. In conclusion, Mrs. Steensma and I would like to again thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Unfortunately, we cannot afford to come to New York again to thank you in person or we surely would. But if you should ever come to Pittsburgh, you would find yourself a most welcome guest in our home. Our deepest thanks, Bert and Ivy Steensma. Yeah, I would have never thought. Like, I even remember the first time I watched it with the cameras panning out. I, I literally stood up and I was like, all right, well, this is uh, this is about over. Right. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, what? And then, yeah. I love that he's just on the street with his guys. Wizard, Doughboy. No one's talking about, got his hair back. No one's talking about Travis's ordeal. It's not like he's sharing stories. Oh yeah, man, it was crazy. Like his hair's grown out. Time has passed. It's just another night. Someone casually notices that he has a fair. He goes in, sits down and we kind of figure out, you know, she says his name. Hey, Travis. And he doesn't seem that concerned or bothered by it. He's not, there's no, oh God, you know, he's lived a little life and he's not going to be fawning over her. It's pretty nice that she's come to see him. She read about what's happened, wishes him well. And he's like, yeah, see you around. And that's it. You know, she walks away. It's a nice, pleasant thing. And then Scorsese goes, we got to add this one thing. We got to add one little flash of him looking at himself in the mirror and just darting a look. And you got to give me this music sting that they played in reverse to make it sound different. You got to do that. And then Schrader's, again, whole ethos is that we started on the streets, we end on the streets, and the movie should play as one giant loop. It's just going to start again. Travis Bickle's mania is not better. He is not cured. 
there is no hope and maybe he's good right now but he will not be good long term and that's what i've always walked away with it and i fucking love that well that this was this was the realization i had well i also had a different one too with civil shepherd where i was like i think she might be interested in him well yeah of course because he's like big hero guy now but i don't think he wants anything to do with her and no, he doesn't. And because there's a certain way that when she starts to turn around after he starts to drive, she starts walking back to her stairs and she does something oh, with yeah. her purse where it's just sort of like, there goes that, I guess. He didn't do anything. I've always understood the ending. I've always exactly what you said. But I've always grappled with myself every time I've watched it in the same way that I kind of do where I'm like, I, oh, I really hope. That, that that's not what it is. And today was the first one, first time I've ever watched the movie where I was definitive. I go, oh, hands down. Nope, there ain't no coming back for him. He is done. He This, this whole entire thing has just started over. And it was because mm-hmm. you get that sting and then it cuts to now we're looking at the mirror. We're not looking at Travis, but we yeah. see Travis through the mirror still for a for a brief, brief second, we see Travis's eyes after that sting, like the whole reverse thing. And then the camera just moves. So now Travis's eyes are no longer in the rearview mirror. And that was the one to me that I go, oh, yeah, he's no longer there anymore. Now this is going to take over again in whatever way it's going to. And I go, that's it. It's over. He's that. that, that they're, they're, yeah. So. But the, today was the first time I've ever actually like solidified myself with that. Oh, wow. So you've always had maybe a little bit more like hope for him. Mm-hmm. Like things mm-hmm. will be. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I that don't... was just a flicker. Maybe that was just like because that that, that 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 could happen. But today was the first time where I was like, nah, nah, bro. <laughs> nah. That ain't happening for you. <laughs> and, and that's where our story ends. And I love it for that. I really thought the story would have ended. Um with the craning up out of the brothel but it doesn't we get the nice coda from yeah, the letter yeah. the great vo and then I, then here it is and that's our film the film is dedicated to bernard herman who again passed away shortly after completing the score what are some names we haven't mentioned talked about director martin scorsese a lot listeners of our last episode will know this is our favorite martin scorsese film written by paul schrader who mm-hmm. has gone on to have a great career still doing great stuff love first reform The film was shot by Michael Chapman, who also shot Raging Bull. I love the look of this film. Because of union and guild regulations, Thelma Schoonmaker did not edit Taxi Driver. She did some supervising thing, I think, kind of off the books. The editors of this, we have Tom Rolfe, Melvin Shapiro, and George Lucas's wife, Marsha Lucas. Isn't that kind of cool? I thought that was cool. A few just final high-level facts. I never realized, I knew that Taxi Driver won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival in 1976, which is great. Tennessee Williams was the jury president that year. I had no idea that Columbia Columbia Pictures released Taxi Driver in February, 1976, February. That would never happen now. Movies have to premiere at Cannes first, but the movie premiered in America was a hit and then won Palme d'Or Con, which is, oh, just, wow. I, I never thought Taxi Driver would have been released around Valentine's Day. I, I don't know. I don't know, but. It's a perfect Valentine's perfect, Day movie. Perfect, perfect. Great <laughs> date movie. Great date movie. Better than the date oh, movie yeah. Travis takes Betsy to, that's for sure. We've <laughs> arrived at the end. You're going to go first today for what are you watching? It's our 100th, well, not really our 100th, because sometimes we don't do recommendations like in the commentaries and stuff. The recommendation is the movie we're 
commentating. Give it to me. I want to hear true. it. It's, it's true. It's true. All right. You're going to love it oh, because God. this is a movie that uh, you did not, uh, you knew about, but this was, this is a long time ago. Uh, I watched this on my own and I told you about it and you go, you watched what? Oh boy. Okay. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, okay. what I'm referring to is a Paul Schrader written and directed movie called Hardcore. Oh my God. I fucking love Hardcore. Oh my God. I fucking. Three dude, years so, after Taxi Driver. Yeah. 1979. Whoa. Yeah. Three years after Taxi Driver. Uh, I, uh, this was on Criterion. <laughs> oh my God, dude. I got into like a little bit of like a Paul Schrader kick like a few years ago and and all of a sudden I'm looking at Criterion channel and I look at hardcore. I was like, huh, hardcore. But it's got wait, who is that actor I'm seeing in the screen cap? George C. Scott. George C. Scott in a Paul Schrader movie? This what? And then I started it and man, oh man, does like uh, yeah. So it, th- that movie goes places that the taxi driver doesn't even go to. And uh it's a blast if you're interested in that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, it, just real quick, because it's about Paul Schrader was raised in like a Galvanist type of community. So he wasn't even allowed to watch movies until like he I don't think he watched movies till he was 17, 18. So that's kind of the basis of the George C. Scott character in this living in Michigan, just, you know, strong man of faith. And then his daughter has moved to Los Angeles and gotten uh, wrapped up in the hardcore porno industry. And he goes and discovers that. And it's a, yeah, that's a Paul Schrader movie right there. <laughs> that's one that Paul Schrader that's wrote, a Paul directed. Schrader and, you, right and George C. Scott is great. In it. Like, he's just totally all he's in. Great Peter in Boyle's he goes in all there in. too. Peter Boyle's great. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep. That's a great call. That's a truly great call. Uh, what are you watching? Got a surprise for you today. 100 episodes. There we go. I have to go one sec. Yeah. <laughs> Here, put this on. He can see. I'm not yeah. A bra. It doesn't. <laughs> Here, sit down. Take a seat. <laughs> doesn't matter. Hello. Hi. Lean forward and talk. Talk right into Hello. here. Hello. This is my wife, Allie. Alessandra's here on the show. She's going to do some What Are You Watching oh, recommendations. Oh, the first time First ever. time we've talked. She's very nervous. I'm She's so very nervous. nervous. We've talked. No one can see you. It's oh, fine. you're going to do great. No, no Only, one can see me. So we, her and I talked about it, about, oh, you said you were scared. Talked about a few movies she could talk about because I've talked about you a lot on the pod. What are you watching? Rec- what are you watching? Recommendation. Why don't you talk? We talked about Taxi Driver. You like that one, right? I loved it. Okay. It was kind of weird, but I loved it. It's very weird. It's very kind of violent. All right. What are, um, what's the one movie we just watched by Martin Scorsese? Wolf of Wall Street. What'd you think? Which I will tell you, I have been attempting to not watch that because I've heard it's so raunchy. And I have like a weird thing about raunchy movies. I don't know why, but I loved it. It was long, but I loved it. We did it. I think we did it in two parts. Two parts. Yeah. Two parts. But I loved it. I was telling Alex, obviously, you know. I didn't know that Leonardo DiCaprio was capable of being that crazy. He's in outrageous. A movie. It's nuts. <laughs> he's, and she, as she pointed out, like it never breaks. Like he's just nuts. No. Even when he turns sober, no. he's still like crazy the whole time for the whole movie. It's I nuts. just think I, yeah. I look at him as like this like composed actor, and uh, to see yeah. him just go crazy and to be this like Wall Street New York wild guy, I was like, this is fun, and I was not expecting to like it. Which is crazy because people love that movie and everyone has told me that it's hilarious and that I would like it. But I'm always like, uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's so gotten much criticized. Yeah, it's gotten criticized as being like a bro movie, which I think is kind of fair. But it's still it's funny. It's a tough yeah, sell, though. Yeah, it's still funny. Yeah, but I loved it. 
Saw it with my dad opening weekend in the movie theater. It was great. <laughs> All right, oh, a few, my God. A few he other ones. You must have loved it. Yeah. A few other ones I've shown her. You said you loved Goodfellas. Love Goodfellas. Goodfellas. I feel like I can, I, can, uh, I can point out quotes from that movie, which I obviously give credit to Alex for because I never could have done that any other time <laughs> in my life. Yeah. She was like, what's the, what, what's the funniest part in that? And I was like, fuck you, pay me. She's like, no, another one. I went, I'm funny how? And she's like, yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> funny yeah. Well, I mean, we love Joe Pesci because we watch like Home Alone 1 and 2 every uh, Christmas, God, of course, obviously. The best. And then she pointed out, I, you're going to love this. Her number one favorite movie that I've shown her. You want to say it? Is True Romance. True Romance. Yes! She loved True Romance. <laughs> oh! Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. I loved it. I thought it was fun. I like as like problematic as they were. I was like, I kind of want to be them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> Alabama. Uh, yeah. There's there there's a hundred percent like a type of like 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 um like freedom in what they're doing yeah. and who they are and their love for each other. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. And I consider myself kind of like a free spirit and kind of wild and crazy. So I was like, this is fun. I feel like Hell I could yeah. have been that in the 80s, 90s. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> you know, I don't want to. <laughs> no, I no, it is. It's very fun. That's a Tarantino script. So it's very good. She said it looked and felt like an 80s movie. And it kind of does, yeah. even though it's made in 90 or was released in 93. It kind of does. Like, but 93 is like venturing yeah. into like, you know, late 80s the fashion and things like that. Those are the things that I notice. I notice you the do, fashion. You do, yeah. She always points out fashion to me. I notice the hairstyles. Yes. Yeah. Like the setting. Well, and there's so much too, like with Gary Oldman's wearing. The what, like, yes. I yeah. mean, like every character's. Yeah, and Christopher Walken looks straight up like an 80s gangster. Yeah, 80s gangster. Yeah. Italian, Italian. That's it. And he, she liked Heat as well. That was another one. You were like, what's the one in the airport hangar at the end? I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, with De Niro. I went, what? And you're like, Pacino? And I'm like, oh, it's heat. Yeah, heat, heat. Fucking love heat. Anything else you want to say? No, I'm going to be back and I'll be more composed and I will stay on longer. And hello, everyone. And hi, Nick. Hello, hi, Ellie. Hi. Welcome hello, to the show. Hello and goodbye. If you just give me a second, I'll sign off and then we can enjoy our Sunday. Bye. Bye. Thank you, sweetie. Oh, that was fantastic. I know. I love that she's just sitting right here while I finish. <laughs> that was great. I've been wanting her to do that for a while. It'd be fun to have her on talk about true romance, Sicario. She loved as well, but ah, uh, good stuff. Yeah, that's my my little treat for our 100th episode here. I can't believe we did it. 100 episodes. Jesus. Well, now everyone knows the proof that you have a wife. <laughs> you just said now it's proof that you <laughs> yeah. have a wife. <laughs> All right. That was a lot of fun. This has been great. And again, I think we're going to be right close to the actual length of Taxi Driver, which I love. I, I we're, we're seriously, it's like one hour and 57 minutes right now. Oh, man. This has been so much fun. Where do we go from here? We're going to go nowhere to go but up. We got a lot of fun stuff coming. Christopher Nolan's got a movie coming out. David Fincher's got a movie coming out. You might hear those names for the rest of 2023, but that's it for me. Anything to leave people with as we sign off here? Here's to 100 more. <laughs> Cheers for the last. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Here you got a uh, real pain for my sham friends and champagne for my hell, real friends. Hell yeah. No, champagne for my real friends, real pain for my sham friends. Is that what you said? You got to say it. Well, I said it the right way, but just reverse. I think I said it the right way. <laughs> you want, So you say champagne yeah, first? Yeah, because he's holding up the champagne. You do the toast first. Champagne for my real friends, real champagne pain, for my real, real friends, real pain for my champagne. Okay, that makes sense. W A Y W underscore podcast is where you find us. Love you all. Thank you all so much for listening to a hundred plus episodes. And as always, happy watching. We love you. 
Now back to Gene Krupa's syncopated style shortly. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostel.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. Send us mailbag questions at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Love him or hate him, the man's got a movie coming out and we're going to talk about him. Next time is a full career breakdown of Christopher Nolan. We have a lot to discuss. This is going to be a fun one. Stay tuned.